0: I'm Tavis Smiley, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, our phone number 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. I just said in our last hour that uh, we are unapologetically progressive, Uh, but that also means, uh, to my mind, telling the truth, holding folk accountable, and oftentimes discussing issues that are perhaps bitter or or difficult to swallow, Uh, and this would be one of those hours. In this hour unarmed black person in the wrong place at the wrong time black person ends up seriously wounded or dead usually at the hands of a white person black community and the nation get outraged black community protest culprit may or may not be held accountable story dies down repeat incident happens days or weeks later so the question is can the cyclical occurrence be interrupted or, pardon the pun, arrested? We talk in this hour with sociologist Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, who I'm delighted to have on this program. Dr. Boyles, how are you today?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am doing well. Um, delighted to be on the air with you for the hour. Um, I, I, I often say to our audience, um, particularly when my engineer, my board out, Miles, brings it to my attention, Uh, that certain guests, when they come on, we give them the option, if there's something they want to hear, we'll play something to open up the conversation. And you chose that particular track from Beyonce. I'm just curious as to why.
1: Well, for one thing, I'm excited to be on here also. Um, So thank you so much for inviting me on. But as far as the song, I think that it stirs, for me, um, resistance Mm -hmm. in some respect. Um, I do a lot of work that's rooted in black feminism. Um And I am often thinking about things through historical significance, and much of that for us, the black community um hails from the south um so to speak and so um there are a culmination of things um that sort of um that sort of comes to mind when I think about that song
0: yep uh when she said from the south, uh let me just mention to you right now, as I will again throughout this program uh that Dr. Boys is a sociologist and professor at Tulane. Uh, in 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 knowledge yeah. uh, and uh, always delighted to be in dialogue with folks in the in the big easy um, So uh, again good to have you on the program. Let me let me start with this We have an hour. So trust me We got time to work this thing out and we will work it out over the course of this next 60 minutes or so um, But that word resistance, uh, I love the word resistance um, It is a, a word I've heard two or three times in discussions on our program just this very week Of course it often comes up uh, But I wonder sometimes uh, about uh, what happens when we use words uh, when they flow off our lips with such ease, I'm not accusing you of this. I'm just saying the the, the demos writ large. Uh, but we, when we get attracted to certain words and resistance seems to be one of those words that everybody's using these days. I think of my dear friend, the great poet Sonia Sanchez, who has a powerful poem she does uh, called Resist, Resist, Resist. I love when Sonia Sanchez um, delivers that particular poem. But that's a powerful word. Uh, there's a lot behind that word. So as an African-American scholar, as an African-American sociologist, before we jump too deep in this conversation, when you use the word resistance, when you talk about your work being rooted in resistance, take a moment to unpack that for me, for starters, and we'll go from there.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, I guess what I would like to start off with, just for providing context to the audience, Mm -hmm. my work accounts for behavioral patterns and the structuring of society. But also, I do this work attending to racial, spatial, or what we can think about as the intersection of race across space, mm-hmm. um, dynamics, which includes politics and the like, All of which I ground in historical significance and ongoing community engagement. And so, for me, when I am talking about black resistance, I am not talking about it in the sense of simply um, putting forth Um, you know, just superficial narratives. However, what I am thinking about is the way we exist as a people Mm -hmm. and how we have done so through the lens of empowerment but also how we've done so as a continuum right? Um, we have existed as a collective and a continuum. And so it is in that space that I'm often thinking about our efforts, how we move forward and advance our agenda, meaning agendas, um, needs, and wants, all those things being included specifically for our community.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great answer. Uh, and that gives me a lot to work with. I know where you're coming from, uh, and based on that, I know where we can go. Uh, just getting started in this hour with, I guess, Dr. Andrea S. Boyle, sociologist. And um, the question, the larger question that we're going to tackle throughout this hour, as I posed moments ago, is whether or not we can uh, in any way interrupt uh, or, or arrest this cyclical occurrence. Um, that we that we find ourselves in it's like groundhog groundhog day all over again, right? You know the movie um, it keeps happening. Uh, and the country is still outraged um, by this young brother, uh, brother Yarow, a sixteen year old being shot twice uh, just because he went to the wrong house in Kansas City trying to find to pick up his uh, his twin siblings. And he ends up shot a couple times uh, just over a simple mistake, like ringing the wrong doorbell. But these stories happen over and over and over again. I'm not naive. We live in America. I'm not naive. Racism is still the most intractable issue in this country. I am not naive. And yet this question of whether or not there's anything can be done to interrupt this cycle is legitimate and worthy of, uh, of, uh, of discourse and interrogation. And we'll do that throughout this hour with Dr. Andrea S. Boyles when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We've got a lot to talk about. Good thing we've got three hours. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Interrogating your assumptions. And expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's get back to Dr. Andrea S. Boyles on KBLA Talk 1580. Glad to have her with us um, in this hour for the hour. Sociologist and professor at Tulane uh, in, in New Orleans. Um, you said a couple things already, Dr. Bowers, I want to just kind of unpack before we, we move forward here. Um, I am, I'm always fascinated uh, by how scholars, um, African-American scholars in particular, see this, uh, how might I put it, this dialectic between the collective and the individual when it comes to advancing our agenda. Just sort of writ large, it seems to me Um, that we, one could argue, and I will argue for the sake of argument, and you can push back if you so like. Um, But it seems to me that we have made uh, progress, uh, a great deal more progress, I think, on the individual level than we've made on the collective level. There's so many African-Americans who've done well in various uh, spheres of human endeavor, various spheres of influence. As a collective, we still continue to lag far behind in every single leading economic indicator category. And there are other things I could point to that suggest as a collective, we still got our work cut out for us as we engage in, to use your word, resistance. On the individual level, we've made significant progress. I could point to any number of individuals, so could you, that have done quite well. As a collective, as I said, we we still got to... Uh, we're still coming up the rough side of the mountain, if I can put it that way, Uh, when it comes to advancing our agenda, addressing issues, making progress on things that matter to us. That's my read. Let me shut up. What's your read on the collective versus the individual when it comes to resistance? Since you teed it up, let me follow you.
1: So thank you for that question. Um, Actually, I address both. Mm -hmm. I address us um, you know, individually and collectively, or really, when we think about community, the way I talk about it is at a macro level, which is what you refer to—black folks writ large, right—and what that means in terms of advancement. But then I also have micro-level conversations about community. I think about and examine the ways in which we are advancing um, individually or in smaller groups, meaning doc, as a doc, protest doc, community. Dr.
0: Boyle let me let me cut, cut in right quick. I I I know we asked you to try. A different phone line i want you to sound as pristine as you can uh uh because I, this is such an important conversation and i can tell given your your brilliance and your intellect i don't want the audience to miss any of this so let me ask you to hang up right quick uh miles is going to get you uh squared away here we're, we're going to try to get a better phone line here because uh, we're, we're cracking this up uh no uh, i'm good miles uh, we're, we're, we're you're cracking up on me and i don't want um uh, I don't want the audience to, to miss anything you have to say. Um, so when we get her back on the line here in just a second, uh, we will continue our conversation and get her response to that particular question. Uh, but again, it's, it's live radio. These things happen. Uh, no biggie, no worries. We will get it fixed uh, and try to hear her as as, as uh, clearly as we can uh, for the benefit of those of you who want to learn as I do in this hour. Uh, in case, again, you've just tuned in, we are we are talking about this cycle um, that uh, repeats itself over and over and over again. Um, where black people always seem to end up in harm's way, uh, no matter what community they might be in. And uh, of course, the country is still outraged, d- devastated, uh, by this uh, young uh, black man, uh, Mr. Yarl, uh, 16 years a- of age, um, shot a couple times. Ralph Yarl is his name, black teenager in Kansas City, shot by an 84 year old white man named Andrew Lester. Uh, for simply and merely ringing the wrong doorbell trying to find his twin siblings but as you well know this is not an outlier these stories happen all the time as i say all the time i'm not naive about this uh, but can anything be done about this cycle that's what we're going to tackle as we move through the hour but uh, i wanted to uh, to start uh, by asking uh, dr balls to unpack the collective versus the individual you heard what i had to say i don't need to repeat it let's now hear what she has to say dr balls take it away
1: yeah, so I was saying this question is a great question, and I actually look at both, right? I examine the individual and collective level, um, for the, of the Black community. And so we can think about that at the macro level, which is the community, the Black community writ large, mm-hmm. um, and what headways we've been able to make there. But then also at the micro level, we can think about individual interactions. We can think about smaller group interactions like our protest community and otherwise. So what I would say in short is that I believe and I argue that we have made headways on both fronts, Mm. individually and collectively. Now, while there is space to be able to, you know, uh, where we can improve or further advance our agendas, um, that makes for another conversation. But by and large, I believe that we have made gains. Um, And we have made gains, um, when I say individually, Meaning that there are things that happen, you know, um, in, in, through interactions individually, be that economic, educational, and otherwise, we, uh, you know, advance success. But then also collectively as a people, if we're thinking about one of the things you mentioned was economically, right? Mm-hmm. So even economically, there are more black folks in the middle class than there are that are impoverished, you know. But I think a lot of what happens is that we get lost in the narrative. Mm-hmm. We get lost in what often is predominantly white narrative. Um And not only that, but also then we regurgitate and repeat those narratives that gives way to ideas that we are not making any headway. We are. It, there is more to be done, and there are critical conversations and things that we ought to be doing and that we can continue to work towards as a people. But by and large, we are not, um, you know, um, a people a deficit people, right? Mm-hmm. We are a people. Who have continued to climb um increasingly over the four hundred plus years of oppression that we've had to face in this nation and and so we continue to imagine even moving forward what that might look like and I mean, and we can talk further about some specific things if you like but um but just generally speaking i I argue that we are advancing, we've got work to do, mm-hmm. but we're certainly not far off or off or uh, or um how I might say um you know inept in any particular mm-hmm. way and not especially as oftentimes stereotypical ideas and narratives would um you know um sort of capture us to be
0: yep no it's it's a brilliant response i i receive every word of it uh let me let me push for the sake of uh uh of making this conversation even more dynamic and and uh uh, uh more rich or richer i should say um I love your phrase that we are not a deficit people. Indeed, we are not. And there's nothing you've said a moment ago that I would, you know, would essentially argue against in terms of the progress we have made. Having said that, uh, I've been at this a long time now, um, and I believe that you don't get the right answers unless you ask the right questions. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, And I was actually in conversation with some folk about this the other day. The question to my mind, Dr. Bowles, is not whether or not we have made progress over the last couple hundred years, indeed, we have. Uh, one, one cannot have a you know one cannot seriously think that black folk have not made progress since slavery, since segregation, since Jane Crow, since Jim Crow, since Reconstruction. Clearly, uh-huh. even with the data that I offered up earlier that we lack behind far behind in every economic category, clearly black folk have made progress as a collective, certainly as individuals, no doubt about that. But the question to my mind is not whether we've made progress from whence we started to where we are today, the question is, how are we doing today over and against white folk today? You got to ask that question in real time, not from then to now, but now to now. So in real time, how do we stack up against uh, other folk who have less melanin in their skin in real time? And in that regard, I'm not so sure that the answer is necessarily the same in real time versus then and now. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So
1: if we're speaking about our progress comparable to white people, yes, then we still face significant disparity. Um, and we face disparity across the board. There's not one particular area I mean we can look at you know a number of things, mm-hmm. right? We can look at health care, you know there's disparity obviously that we face disproportionately there. We can look at you know economically, you know there's disparity there we if we look at things you know in, in terms of education, there's education disparity, so we continue um comparable to white folks. It is likelier that we're going to yes have disparity emerging from one aspect of our existence to the next. Um, and so we continue to fight and push back on that, right? Mm-hmm. Again, I think broadly what I would like to sort of highlight is that even with that, you know, um, all those things that we have continued to face that are comparable to white folks, we are also having to do that more often than not um, through trauma and a host of other things that has deliberately um, been an effect of those disparities, um, has been a deliberate effect um, that oftentimes works against us, is mm-hmm. continuously working against us. One of the things I heard you mention is how we continue to go round and round with these shootings and all sorts of things that leave our people, you know, on the dead end of, you know, exchanges, mm-hmm. you know. And so these things, there are a number of things, including that, right, death, that are constantly being. Being thrown against the walls, so to speak, to see what sticks. Uh, when it comes to white affluent and um, political America, um, and so we have had to continue, despite the fact that we've had these disparities, despite the fact that we continue to work collectively, we have continued to have to move the ball and advance our agenda. Understanding that it has been deliberately things have been deliberately stacked against us and working in ways that will circumvent these hurdles time and time again. But we've done so and Mm -hmm. we've done so as a collective and we've done so on a continuum.
0: Yep. So you you said earlier that your that your work centers around as a sociologist and professor at Tulane, uh, your work centers around interrogating, as it were, the intersection of race and space, the intersection of race and space. Um, again, you could, I'm sure that you could spend hours <laughs> answering this one question, sure. uh, but let me, let me, let me try it to see if I can at least understand the frame that you're putting me in in this hour. As we move forward, uh, when you, when you interrogate the intersection of race and space in late modernity, the intersection of race and space in real time, what frame are we in? What do you see?
1: So one of the things that I have done is timestamp 21st century black resistance. Mm-hmm. And I timestamped, that, you know, um, at the onset of the Ferguson uprising, that is one thing in particular uh, more recently that I've been, you know, accounting for and moving forward in terms of um, 21st century black resistance and what that means inside of protests, but then also at the ground level in our neighborhoods, in our, you know, the um Remember I talked about the micro level analysis mm-hmm. of community, you mm-hmm. know, and so I, what I think what I will say is that we have um, continued to work again, um, both individually and collectively. But when I talk about race and state, I'm having us or at least arguing that we ought to look at things historically in terms of what race has meant. Across spaces, right? We exist within a history where space has always been relegated on the basis of race. Um, and so in my work, one of the things in particular I look at, and I spend quite a bit of time looking at the suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. And these ideas, these, and these assumptions and ideas about where black folks exist and, or where they ought to exist or not exist. Um, and so oftentimes we're thinking about black folks in urban space. We're thinking in, not so much in suburban space, you know, things like that. The idea of white flight, you know, what all those things mean mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, um, even advancing our agenda, what that means politically. We've got things happening like gerrymandering, a whole host of things that often occur about space, black folks existing across space mm-hmm. and what that means and how that might trigger for white people particularly levels of threat and otherwise they ultimately end up again being devastated for our com- devastating for our community so that's what i'm talking about racial mm-hmm. spatial politics yep. and how those shake out right and so um and so that i just provided a, a couple of examples i'm not real sure if you want me to dig deeper into something very specific but again one example you know like i i it, it we talked about the shootings, right? So even if we go back to your example used about shootings of this young man, um, Ralph, in Kansas City, right? So that happened in the suburbs, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that oftentimes, even when I'm thinking about race and space, black folks have been idealized as urban people, inner-city people. The suburbs were actually created for white people. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, the idea was to move away from black folks, Right. And have space in the exterior parts of urban or the outer core of the inner city, you know. Um, and so the idea that black folks cross into those spaces or somehow find themselves existing you know, there that, that increases racial threat. I would almost argue, um, from what's been reported thus far, that that is probable what happened with um, Ralph, you know, this young man being in the suburbs, appearing as blackness in a suburban space on a white doorstep. Mm. Um, And so the idea of blackness being okay and allowable, according to white people, or permissible and non-threatening in certain ranges, be that space, we're talking about concrete spaces, meaning neighborhood, geographic location, or that space even if we think about arguments academically or epistemologically, right, mm-hmm. um, Space, academic space, curriculum space, that's an issue, right? Wherever black folks show up, it's oftentimes politics based on how and when and where white people have decided we're most threatening to them. And in this particular instance, we have physical space where Ralph shows up, his blackness becomes space of threat in, suburban, in a suburban place where black folks are often idealized as not belonging or mm-hmm. existing except they are there for purposes of criminality
0: oh no this thing is getting rich it's getting rich and uh i am uh, uh I'm, my, my head is spinning with all the things that i want to uh, to talk to her about as we move through the through the rest of this hour uh, i'm looking at my clock here i've got news trafficking sports in about 60 seconds uh and so i want to tee up for dr boyle's where i want to go given all that she's just said Uh, I got a lot I want to interrogate uh, when we come forward uh, with news, traffic and sports. This notion, uh, and I was in a conversation about this in a meeting yesterday about this, in fact, Uh, I want to ask her politically, economically, culturally, socially, what does it mean that most black folk in this country, speaking of race and space, most of us reside in major cities? Uh, i was looking at a map yesterday of the top 10 places where black people live top 10 cities for black folk in this country um and again in the, in the dialogue about this yesterday for some business reasons um i was just wrestling with this and so i want to ask her politically again socially economically culturally what does it mean that we reside in these urban centers uh, this notion of spatial threat she just broke that thing down beautifully did she not uh, how ralph yarl this 16 year old black teenager found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time his presence as a black boy on a white doorstep makes him a spatial threat. That's worth interrogating. And I also want to interrogate um, she, she's talked about uh, uh, what she referred to as 21st century black resistance. I'm curious to her mind as to how 21st century black resistance in any way differs from 20th century black resistance. Does 21st century black resistance differ from 20th century black resistance? And if so, What of it? A lot more to get to as we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We know you stick around. This is L.A.'s home for progressive talk radio. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. I am Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you in with us in this hour. And you are inside of a rich dialogue we are having uh, with Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, a sociologist and professor at Tulane University. And I'm anxious to get back to this right now. Before news traffic and sports, she was talking about... uh, if I could put it this way, the ways in which black folk have to navigate the intersection of race and space. She'd made the powerful point that what this young brother, Ralph Yarl, 16 year old black teenager in Kansas City, uh, found himself dealing with was the spatial threat, the spatial threat that he represented being in the wrong place at the wrong time, which leads me to ask forthrightly and directly whether or not this is another uh, example of, um, of uh, the ways in which black folk are unwelcome or do not belong, Dr. Bowles, in certain suburban spaces?
1: Absolutely. We still live in a nation that consists, even today, of sundown towns. And and so a lot of times people either do not or are not aware of sundown towns or either they believe that they only existed, right, like during the Reconstruction period Mm -hmm. or during the Civil Rights era. You know, the truth of the matter is those towns still exist. Um, And and so my point by and large is that there are still spaces that are very, very clear, um, or at least, let me put it this way, there are boundaries, Mm -hmm. right? Boundaries that cross communities from urban to suburban, um, and then the exterior of that would then be the, uh, more rule settings um, that have been crystal clear about not particularly welcoming black folks. Um, and, and so, um, so yeah, that's mm-hmm. a liable and will. Yeah. And we hear those dynamics even when we think about politics and campaigning and all those kinds of things, who's going to galvanize the white vote or the, the suburban vote, those kinds of things. That gets leveraged because there's a broad understanding that those racial dynamics exist across these geographic spaces.
0: Yep. So so to your point now um, about about politics, let me let me ask this question forthrightly. Let me preface it by saying, of course, uh, black folk are pretty much everywhere, maybe not in Montana, but we're 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 pretty much everywhere. Uh, Maybe not in droves, but everywhere you go, uh, you will find some black folk, Montana, Alaska, doesn't much matter. You'll find black people somewhere. Uh, But you'll take the point of the question that I'm about to ask um, based on what you said earlier. What does it mean? Uh, in 2023, uh, that black folk in this country continue for the most part to reside in urban spaces. What does that mean? Politically, economically, culturally, socially, any way you want to take it. That is our reality that we are, our reality that we are not as spread out as they are. What's that mean for us ultimately?
1: You know, I think that um, we are more spread out than what we can imagine. Um, Again, there is an assumption that black folks are, by and large, in urban spaces. And sure, while there's a concentration of us there, there's also an increasingly um, large number of black folks existing in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Those also then become, as some of the participants in previous projects of mine, would refer to as... um, the ghetto across suburban lines. Um, They've been, they've referenced it as that, um, that, That has become the understanding. And so what we see, um, particularly even if I go back to, I mentioned earlier, the Ferguson uprising. So even if you go back to places like Ferguson, Ferguson is the suburbs, it's the suburbs of St. Louis. You know, you have these pockets, these small municipalities across locations um, or parishes or, you know, whatever we want to think of them or reference them as that is still over into suburban space where there are pockets of black folks existing that are very reminiscent of impoverishment in urban spaces. And so even though they're existing in the suburbs, it continues to be the same kind of racial spatial dynamics. Um, there's an increase in a surge of black folks in the suburbs, but then when they get there, oftentimes they're there because there has been um, a, a white flight yet again, meaning white flight back into the inner city that then forces urban renewal or what some we would refer to as Negro removal. And so when that happens, then black folks are pushed into suburban spaces. So there is this reciprocal relationship that continues to play out and often playing out around what spaces white people have decided are most lucrative from the inner city to the suburbs and how they then flight you know, uh, or flock to those places um, and being black folks as threatening and needing to be moved or relocated or relegated and segregated into the suburban spaces as well. Hmm.
0: It, it, I, I think you'll take my point if you, if you don't uh, back me up and I'll explain it. As I listen to you right okay. now, as I listen to you right now, Dr. Balls, it sounds to me like historically the places and spaces in which black folk have lived and occupied, They've been there more by chance than by choice. And when I say by chance than by choice, I mean, if I hear what you've just said, we end up being told or allowed or priced into certain spaces based on the moves that others make. So that's, to my mind, uh, suggesting that we live where we live. We occupy the space we occupy by chance and not necessarily by choice. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yes. There has mostly been history, but then also I want to throw out there, for the sake of furthering um, these ideas about, in my argument, about racial threat, um, even when black folks, for example, your your discussion of black folks mostly existing in the inner city versus suburban spaces, even when black folks have or um, are economically positioned to live in a fluent, suburban communities or affluent areas, per se, that are oftentimes sort of thought of and idealized stereotypically as for white people, um, more often than not, they still move down. Mm -hmm. And when I say move down, meaning they move down economically into um, um, places, spaces that may be uh, predominantly black and not necessarily um, economically Um, You know, and and economically lower for them for the sense of safety. Black folks do not want to be the only families or the one family or the one individual existing in an all-white community. Mm -hmm. There's a fear there. So the, the fact that when we talk about community, one of the things or the characteristics of even having community, building community, is emotional safety, a sense of belonging and identification. If black folks cannot, even if they have the economic wherewithal, many times they will not move into an all-white community, even if in some ways it's economically more advancing or developed um, for the sense of safety, racial safety. And again, we can go back to, um, Ralph Young. and so why that is a recent example. There are countless examples for which Black folks, existing in predominantly white spaces, find themselves facing increased racial threat and the like. Um, you know, hate and all sorts of things, and, and so it is in that sense that oftentimes we will exist where our community is predominantly reflective of who we are racially.
0: Hmm. Which leads me uh, directly into the question of resistance. We started talking about resistance. Here we are now uh, three quarters into this hour talking again about resistance. So when we come forward, uh, I want to go right to this question again about resistance. You uh, have said a couple of times, used the phrase a couple of times during this conversation, 21st century black resistance, 21st century. Black resistance. I want to um, uh, probe uh, whether or not 21st century black resistance is any way different from 20th century resistance, and if so, in what ways? Just want to get a sense of where you think we are, uh, uh, vis-a-vis this notion of resistance uh, in real time. Our guest is Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, sociologist, professor at Tulane University. We're talking about community. We're talking about the the cycle uh, that Black folk find themselves in. Uh, with these stories like the one regarding Ralph Yarl, teenager in Kansas City, shot a couple times for ringing the don- wrong doorbell. Why does this continue to happen? We'll get, before the hour is over, to the notion of whether or not anything can be done about this cyclical occurrence, whether it can be interrupted or arrested. But when we come forward, we'll come right to this question of 21st century black resistance with Dr. Andrea S. Boyles, who you're listening to right now on KBLA Talk 15. Dr. Bowles, when it comes to the way we exist as a people, um, is there anything that you have noted in your research that is significantly different uh, about 21st century black resistance uh, over and against as compared to 20th century black resistance?
1: So, to be clear, I time the Ferguson Uprising as the start of 21st century black resistance. Mm. Um, And and with all due respect, I want to do this before I go further, I want to, given the scope of how the Ferguson Uprising began, um with the unfortunate untimely death um murder of Michael Brown Jr. I want to send my thoughts and prayers to the Brown family and also I would like to pay homage to those grassroots organizers and activists on the ground there. Um as a native St. Louisan I was present um in the first few um the immediate hours of the uprising and documenting and I time it because what was understood and became crystal clear in the days ahead is that activists, um, the community prided itself in 400 days of sustained direct action. Mm -hmm. It is the longest sustained direct action for black folks since the Montgomery bus boycott, which had lasted um, roughly or reportedly 13 months or 381 days or so. Um, And so it is in that space that we see 400 days of sustained direct action happening out of the Ferguson uprising. The other thing um, that I especially make note of is the fact that the groundswell that came with that. So we see grassroots organizations emerging um, across all segments that also is inclusive of um, online activism, right? We see that take off. And and then those that had already been existing um, through online activism, so, for example, like Black Lives Matter, we see them the emergence of the Ferguson uprising and after having spent time on the ground with those activists there in St. Louis and in the Ferguson region, after spending time then take off to become global networks, right? We see movement for black lives in all sorts of other organizations that take off, that ultimately become the groundswell further into some of the later uprisings that we then see um, you know, with other shooting circumstances or other disenfranchisements that we face and continue to face with as people my that you know, is that be it twentieth century twenty first century what is the same is that we are a continuum when it comes to resisting um, predominantly white oppressive systems. Um, And so it is ongoing. Um, And whether the media actually captures the totality of it or not, um, there's never been a time historically where we have not been actively working at the ground level to advance our agenda in the street and otherwise. And so I think that's the thing that gets lost. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the narrative portrays us as if we are only actively involved involved or engaging in a particular way following a police shooting that's not true right we are consistently working and so um i I just sort of want to make that point too
0: nope you made it and you made it well (laughs) when we come forward in our remaining moments with dr andrea S. Boyles, i want to come right to uh, the question uh that we posed at the beginning of this hour and that is whether or not this cyclical occurrence can be in any way addressed arrested interrupted choose your word uh, because it seems to me that it is just a matter of time i say this with with uh, with a with a with uh, with a deep chagrin uh, and concern but it seems to me it's just a matter of time before we hear sadly another story like the one we just uh, heard about ralph Yarrell, um black person wrong place wrong time uh wounded or dead usually at the hands of a white person uh and um how long will it be before we hear another story about, again, some black person ringing the wrong doorbell, pulling in the wrong driveway, and then, and uh, they end up either wounded or, or worse, dead? Can anything be done to interrupt that cycle? That's our exit question for Dr. Andrea S. Boyles when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now, Dr. Balls, because you are an expert um, at um, understanding uh, and unpacking the intersection of race and space vis-a-vis Black people, um, I want to close uh, by getting your take on uh, whether or not anything can be done to uh, again to arrest this uh, this, uh, re- this this cycle. Uh, where a black person shows up uh, oftentimes by accident in the wrong white space and their very presence, as you as you suggested earlier, uh, becomes a racial threat, a spatial threat. Um, anything to be done about that, or is, is that just the way it's going to be for time eternal?
1: You know, so realistically, and some might argue that I'm being pessimistic, but it's realistic. Um, you know, it, I, I challenge us to think about the fact that this nation was, you know, at least colonial-wise, born out of imperialism, right? And the driving dynamic was economic viability, and economic viability at the expense of African-descendant people and people of color generally. And so that still remains true, right? So even in today's time, since I account for behavioral patterns and I do that through a historical lens, what we cannot dismiss is the fact that those dynamics are still very true that that spirit of imperialism still exists where there is superiority and whiteness that is um assumed and entitled or, um, or, or at least um, thought after, and uh, the, the idea of control um, that we see happening and playing out politically and otherwise, and until that is different, right, um, and until that is wholly recognized and acknowledged and, um, you know, and rolled back, be it in action— rather than pontificating and pandering, then yes, we will continue to see oppression. We will continue to see, um, you know, uh, the lack thereof of gun legislation. We will continue to see things like, um, you know, inept or, you know, um, a lack of quality in education systems and things like that that oftentimes prove, prove disadvantageous to black people and people of color generally. So there, so the short answer to your question, there are so many different layers to this tab, and i'm that I can almost not squeeze a lot of it into this hour, but to answer your question um it, it, there has to be less talk and more action, particularly mm-hmm. as it relates to um improving um and and providing equity um for black people and people of color generally and one thing that that has not uh, that has not happened or at least we see more often than not, is a lot of um, mouth action, meaning a lot of pontificating and, again, a lot of pandering. And Mm -hmm. so and people attempting to sort of balance the scale, right? You can't balance the scale and say, well, what we... Like, there's an often reference to we, right? Mm -hmm. What we should do, we should all just, you know, sort of giving the impression as if we can just have this one big kumbaya moment, right? And that will take care of everything. No, power doesn't work like that, right? Imperialism was not acquired or not manifested in that way. And so it is until these powers, these sustained, white, often affluent powers, spaces of power are unraveled or rolled back, pushed back from one extreme to another, then no, we are likely not to see equity in the way that we hope for. And th- so we continue to imagine.
0: Got 30 seconds left here. Um, Gil Scott-Heron said the revolution would not be televised. You wrote a book a few years ago called You Can't Stop the Revolution. Do you still feel that way, that the revolution cannot be stopped?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what folks cannot do, whether they are attempting to... Um, and curriculum, black curriculum, or attempting to, um, you know, um, kill black people, uh, or any other acts that take place that are very much rooted in anti-blackness, right? Mm. No matter what that might be, what they cannot stop and what have never been, um, never been possible mm. is the black existence, the black effort to thrive and survive, to survive and thrive, and so we will continue
0: to do that. Her book
1: individually and collectively.
0: I take your point. Her book is called You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America, which she of course, referenced earlier in this conversation. Dr. Boyles, thank you for your work and witness. Good to have you on the program. All the best to you. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you.
1: Thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day.
0: Same to you. Hour three of Tavis Smiley after news, traffic and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.